Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Welcome, Tim Curtis. And welcome to you, Ben. Thank you. Our guest this week turns out to be pretty hard to kill. Mm. No, maybe not so hard to kill. <laughs> Actually has been, has died three times. Well, he's hard to keep killed. <laughs> yeah, he comes back. <laughs> um. McQuilty Coco Quirk mm-hmm. is an army medic, 18 years experience, and my goodness, what an 18 years um, in terms of a military career. Um, he joined the army in 1999 um, after a childhood ambition to become a combat medic, mm-hmm. which he did successfully. Um, and then before deploying overseas, uh, found himself in a, an absolute life and death situation in a training environment um, for which he was warded awarded Australia's highest honour for for medical uh, military service. Subsequent to that, he spent a number of deployments overseas, culminating in an IED strike in 2011, which caused that that series of deaths. Three periods where um, Coco had no vital signs, all of which he came back from in the moment, and then after 32 medical procedures, he's come back to be the incredible person that we speak to in this episode today. Exactly. I mean, not just a physical casualty, but a mental casualty and an emotional casualty. And can you believe this, that he describes this day that he got blown up and died three times as one of the best days of his life? To get a bit of an insight into the kind of person that could view such a tragedy in such positive sense... Keep listening. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. G'day, Tim Curtis. Hello, Ben. Are you all right? Very well, thank you. Good, good. I'm pleased. Now, we are joined via the magic of Zoom, which we finally worked out how to, how to get the audio going on, uh, by McQuilty Quirk, better known as Coco. How are you, mate? Very good, Ben. Very good. Nice to meet you both. Tim, you look dashing today. Thank you, sir. I've dressed up for this occasion. And and me? Yeah, both. <laughs> less, <laughs> less so. <laughs> we, just before we uh, we went on air, we were talking about um, Coco Knows My Brother. The, mm-hmm. the legend Dan Pronk. The legend Dan Pronk. And, and yes. um, yeah, we were talking about comparison between he and I. I came off very unfavorably compared. Mm, yes, you are not a former professional triathlete, nor are you a doctor. Nor apparently am Ooh. I good looking. So mm. I, I take that quite personally over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, mate. Thank you very much for, for um, joining us on the show. So much to talk about, but it'd be awesome just to maybe start at the start. Um, yeah. Clearly military background. Uh, what got you into the army in the first place? Yeah, I, was, uh, I, I guess I was always interested in the army. I think the day that it sort of changed into a, a real focus for me, we, we went away for a hockey trip, field hockey trip uh, with our school, and I've always loved reading. And I was reading a story about... Um, Delta Company, Vietnam, Battle of Long Tan, mm-hmm. and the medics that were involved in that. And um, what really struck me is they 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 saved some lives that day. 
uh, and without them, we probably wouldn't have that story um, yeah. as good as it is. So I looked at my teacher and, and he said, what are you going to do with your life, McQuilty? And I, I said, I'm, I'm going to join the army as a medic. And I made my mind up on the spot. And that was towards the end of grade 10, um, which probably didn't translate across to my schoolwork. I, uh, I figured since I was going to join the army, I didn't need to be that crash hot at school. And I was smart enough, mind you. I was, you know, I was cleaning up in the grades and mm. grade 11 and 12 turned into a bit of a, a journey of playing rugby and rugby league and hockey and all the sports. And uh, I wasn't very good at chasing the girls. So, you know, just hanging out to go camping and, and spear fishing on the weekends with my mates. And by the end of grade 12, my, my grades weren't that crash hot, but I had good enough grades to get into the army. Um, but I spent a year sort of working in and around Bowen where we grew up. Yep. Um, going to Early Beach a hell of a lot, <laughs> uh, which I think was a rite of passage for us back then. Any any spare chance we got, we'd drive down at eleven at night, and you know we'd come back at seven in the morning. And um, for for our listeners who may not be that familiar, Early Beach is pretty much backpacker mecca, isn't it? Mm. It's on the gateway to the Whit yeah. Sundays. There mm. are people, boys and girls from every corner of the world. An amazing sort of hub of and and a party town. A, a pretty interesting place to be as a young person. It is. And, it, you know, it was an adventure every time we went down there. And, and I'm a real big people person. So I loved, you know, talking to different people and finding out about different things about their backgrounds and where they were from. And um, I was drawn to the different accents of people around the world. And um, and then I joined the army in, in 1999, on 7th of December. I packed my bags up and went down to Kapuka. Um, and then, yeah, it was... It was uh, I guess, I'd, you know, a torrid year where I sort of just let loose and, and did a hell of a lot of drinking and, um, you know, we're smoking cigarettes and drinking and partying the whole time. Uh, but I got to that point where I realised that it, it wasn't going to help me join the army if I kept doing that, yeah. uh, which you join the army and when you're young, you still do the same thing. You know, you spend more time going out when you're in your, your basic training than what you should be and you spend all your money on alcohol and food and it just turns into this... Um, balance of of trying to figure out what's best for you as you move forward in your career and and what's not good for you and i think we always choose that path where we we're keen to go out and celebrate every little win with it with a drink mm. um yeah and uh from there you know just i've carved out an 18 year career as a medic and i have no regrets about any of my time in the army um I, you know plenty of run-ins with people and i think you've got to have those run-ins to build the person that you are today because um, I learned a lot of lessons during my time and, you know, that, that helps me as I step forward in life mm. post-defence. Post and so 18 years in the military and it has been a pretty impressive 18 years. You you said sort of 1999 you, you joined, became a, a medic and then let's yep. fast forward to 2007. You were supporting a training exercise for a cavalry squadron. Yeah, uh, it was actually in 2000 and I got my um, nursing service cross nomination in 2007 mm-hmm. um, and I was I actually received the paperwork when I was in Iraq in 2006 hmm. but uh, in 2004 we were supporting I was a medic for B squadron 34 cavalry regiment in mm-hmm. Townsville and the one thing I loved about them guys um, one of the most professional units I've ever been involved with but they had this great slogan which is a second class ride is better than a first class walk. <laughs> and, you know, having, having served with, 
with uh, the second battalion in Timor just previous in 2001, the end of 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew a lot of the boys. We, I'd pass them at high range just and wave because I was having a nice, comfortable ride as they were walking 40Ks <laughs> in, you know, and it became a running joke. But, um, yeah, well, we were supporting a, a shoot, yeah. Sorry, mate, yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, both Tim and I uh, served in uh, two RAR and, and we love the, the three-quarter CAV guys. You can't call them yeah. three-quarter, it's three-four CAV. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, that second-class ride, and it was a second-class ride, but it, it certainly sure as hell beat walking. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, the buckets were um, they were smelly and noisy, but uh, it's still one of the best vehicles I've worked in in, in the Army. Mm. Um yeah, we were on one side of the range supporting a, a range shoot and we'd sort of just pull down the old 30 cals, the twin 30 cals on the on the um, Ambo and we're, you know, shooting them and getting them fired through. And um, over the radio, we heard a, had a, a, a call for help. Um, it was a prior one casualty up in high range and, and widow makers were old dead trees and mm. a lot of them are hardwood. Um, and you could you could run into one with a with a bucket and it wouldn't do anything, but you brush it slightly and or walk past it and it's just enough to send the top half coming down on top of your head. Um, and they were called widow makers for a reason. Mm. Um, and the crew commander who was ex uh, two cav, oh, he was an ex tanky from Darwin mm-hmm. at one armoured, Captain Robertson. Um, their vehicle brushed up against a, a widow maker in the top half of a tree about eight meters came smashing down top right on the point of his head. It was amazing how it happened. Um, excuse me. And it uh, damaged his neck pretty severely. Um, so we were in the middle of a rain shoot and we, were, we couldn't move because of live fire. So they, over the radio was um, this, this uh, you know, primary one casualty nine liner that we call them nowadays came over and there was no beer vehicle access. And, you know, for those that don't understand beer vehicles or any type of um, like four wheel drive or, or two wheel drive vehicle that we can drive around the streets and do a little bit of off road with, they, um, they couldn't get in there where they were with the bucket. So that information was misinterpreted and they sent my sergeant in with a Land Rover, but gave him the wrong grid. Um, and I was listening. I was trying to get the message that you've given them the wrong grid, but we got told to stay off the net. Obviously, you know, you don't want to go interrupting something in process. By the time I got over to him, um, it was an hour and a half after the incident and we were talking him through on the radio, picked up the Sarge at the wrong grid on the way through, Chris Tindall. Um, and this guy was standing in the turret. Um, I talked him through removing his helmet, which a lot of people told me that I should never have done. But with his injury, his C1 which is his vertebrae at the top of his neck was, mm. was snapped in three places and the ligaments from his C2 process were the other things holding it together. And the weight of the helmet could have snapped those ligaments. Mm. Um, so I had to make a lot of calls on the run, um, which is pretty tough when I didn't have a real full picture of what the situation was. And when we got there, he was standing in the turret um, and I got him to sit in the turret and I went to shove the tree off the, the actual car itself and, just you know give it a bit of a shove it didn't move and i was like shit this is this is a pretty hefty bit of wood so <laughs> i took a couple of us to push it off the vehicle uh and captain robertson was in a pretty bad way um took us about an hour and a half to get him out of the turret we had to remove the 50 cal and uh, you know there's a whole series of things that happened um that delayed that treatment and getting him out of there just small things you know to, to pin the hold the 30 cal machine gun in was put in the wrong side so we couldn't get it out um the 50 cal was stuck and we were, you know, we wrestled with that for half an hour before we got it out. 
uh, comms was dropping in and out, which always happens. Um, <laughs> it always happens when something bad goes on. We've, I think you have seen that in your careers. <laughs> um, and uh, we had to get a, a Kendrick ex- extrication device, which is like a, a spinal splint on him, and it sort of wraps him up and sits him up nice and tight and yeah. keeps his spine from moving, had a collar on him. He was screaming in pain. Um, we called for, for a chopper uh, to come and get him. And the only problem was the Westpac chopper was doing a run out to Charters Towers at a farmer had a heart attack. So we had no choppers in the air available. So we asked range control to get in touch with Five Aviation. Um, and they sent a Chinook up um, and picked up a, a heap of uh, paramedics from range control. Uh, there was a bit of colourful language across the net just before that. They wanted us to road move him out. And I kept saying, if we road move him, he'll die because it's just too rough to get him out. And, you know, we're entrenched in the middle of high range training area. There's, they've driven over stumps and everything to get to where they were um, doing their training. So we uh, eventually load him up and the chopper lands and we'll get him in the chopper. Um, and he, he gets taken to, to Townsville uh, General Hospital. And about a week later, we got to go down and see him. Um, I got dragged into the surgeon's office. He said, see, it's the third time he's seen that type of injury. The first time he's ever seen anyone alive mm. come into hospital, uh, which is pretty special. Mm. Um, and when he asked, how'd we do it? I, you know, I looked at him and said, well, we just did everything very slowly, very carefully. Uh, one thing we get trained at as, as medics in the Australian army or Navy or air force is that you have to be deliberate with any sort of C-spine or spinal injury. Um, and I think our training saved his life and the amount of help we had that day from the boys was just phenomenal mm-hmm. getting him in and, you know, out of that machine. So, um, I met his fiance at the time and his mum, um, and he had a big halo on his head sitting there with a big frame to keep his neck straight. Um, <laughs> surgery was successful. Unfortunately, he wasn't allowed to, um, drive any, uh, armored vehicles anymore. So he became a desk driver at, in Canberra. And I lost contact with him, but um, the last I heard, he was doing really well. Mm. Um, you know, and that was a, a big day for us. And I was surprised sitting in Iraq when my wife, I, I was talking to my wife and she said, I've got to send you some paperwork. Um, do you have anywhere you can get a fax? And I gave her the fax number, talked to the chief clerk and it came through and chief clerk had a look and he's like, mate, you, you're going to have to go and have a sit down and think about what you want to do here. And I was like, okay walked outside and I was sitting down having a cigar actually trying to figure out if I wanted to accept, you know, accept it, uh, which is something that you have to do when you get those, um, um, you know, awards where there's post nominals concerned. Um, you have to accept that you will receive it. Uh, and I was sitting out there for about an hour and Colonel Mick May came out. Uh, I think he's no Mick. He's, he's yeah, a very yeah, good, he was, a, he was good. Champion. Yeah. And he was awesome. And he sat down and, I had my cigar box there and he said, do you mind if I grab one? I'm like, go for it. <laughs> leave, leave five bucks in the other side. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the beautiful cigars too. We had a, a engineer from, um, an American engineer that had been bought, born in South America that was getting him sent over from his cousins in <laughs> South America. So they were beautiful handrail cigars. It was, and we just sat there smoking and he's, and he, we sort of sat there for half an hour, not saying much and just puffing away. And he, um, looked out at the paperwork and he said, what are you going to do? I said, about what? He said, about your nomination. I said, how do you know about it? 
He goes, I know everything. Let's go. What do you want to do? And I'm like, I really don't know. And I had to talk to a couple of people that have had a massive influence on my career right up to that moment um, and just have a chat to them because I, I wasn't sure if I should accept it given there was two medics on the ground that day, my sergeant, who, who thoroughly deserved one as well. Uh, and, and one of my mates just said, mate, like, you're not just taking that for you, you're taking that for everyone that was there on that day. And if you don't accept it, then something, something will get lost um, mm. to history, essentially. Um, so, you know, I decided to take it. So that was a, a really surreal moment for me, sending all that paperwork back with my signature and accepting it, that award. And, you know, my wife was pretty chuffed. She was a medic. She did 10 years in the army as well. Mm -hmm. And she understood the gravity of that decision that I had to make. Um, but she said, this is something you have to make on your own. I can't influence you. And uh, to this day, I'll look to her for advice. She's um, the best part of me. Um, yeah. So got home in 2007 and we we're at Bush again. That's what happens when you get home and was punished. If you're good at your job, they're like, congratulations, Coco, you're going out Bush again. I was like, cheers. Like, let's do this. Um, and yeah, got sent home Bush from bush, uh, mid bush, we're, you know, cause back then we were doing six, seven weeks of time at bush or four or five weeks. In, and I loved it. And that was the best time for me to mm. be out there. And, um, it meant I wasn't getting in trouble with Sam at home. So <laughs> <laughs> if you're married, you know that. So, um, yeah, I went up to Cairns and my mum came up, my little brother and uh, my brother, he came back from bush too. And Hager and he, he, um, Hager was infantry and I don't know if you know Hager, he tried selection a few years ago. Um, and kept passing out on his sugar levels would just drop when he exercised mm -hmm. heavily and he just kept passing out. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure Dan was the doctor on that selection course that he was on. Right. So yeah, it's, it, uh, it was a, a really surreal moment getting presented that by governor Bryce. Uh, and it's something that I'm really proud of still today that, uh, we managed to save, um, somebody's life, um, and not on operations, you know, it's a bit different to what the, the current run of the mill thing is where everyone's getting um, awarded for medals overseas. It was a bit different to that. And people still ask me about it today and I have to explain to them, no, that's a high range, mate. We we're on a, you know, like, and some people like, regardless of where I got that medal from, I still think it's a significant story that we can't forget. Um, mm. And, and much, you know, because the teamwork that shown that day was what got him out of there alive. And, you know, I can't take that credit on my own. And, it's something that I love. So, um, you know, I'm still mates with all those people and, and we, we, uh, talk about those times a lot when we get together. It's, it's, you know, those are the things that build you as a medic and as a person and make you realize that army does teach you good lessons, especially when you don't think they're teaching you lessons at all. <laughs> and, and look, just for some context, I mean, it is an incredible achievement and a thoroughly well-deserved and impressive award. But for our listeners, the Nursing Service Cross, the NSC that COCO was awarded, is the, the highest um, of the honours and awards available for uh, medic-specific actions within the whole Australian uh, system. So an, an absolute um, appropriate recognition of, of just what you did that day. And a very Thank mature you, outlook, COCO, in terms of your accepting that, I mean, it doesn't really matter whether it's an honour or award on behalf of those people that assisted in some small way. And I think regardless of whether the honour and the award is in the military division or the civilian division, there's always other people part of it. You know, if you're recognised for yep. valour, for bravery, for your contribution, it's also a recognition that 
you know, you've worked with people that have supported you. I think that's a really mature way of, of looking at it and thinking about it. Can we just press a little, a little, you know, maybe um, slow motion button here? I'm yep. interested in just dissecting what happened on that day. Um, the first question I, I guess I have is you demonstrated leadership, but maybe you weren't thinking about the leadership that you were demonstrating and maybe you didn't have all of the rank that empowered you as a leader, but you were making calls that were literally life and death that changed the outcome. What can you take away from that in terms of leadership lessons? Yeah, that's um, and it's a different way of looking at it too. And I probably didn't learn those leadership lessons until afterwards when we broke it all down um, and I had a really good you know, chance to think about what we actually did that day. Um, and being a corporal, uh, I was brought up where, you know, corporals were the backbone of the military. And a lot of the decision making when it comes down to what we do is at the corporal level. Um, and, and I believe that corporals um, probably make more decisions in any given situation on a daily basis when we're not talking about the officer side of, the, side of things. But as a corporal, you know, we make a lot of those decisions based off what we see. Um, and looking back, I think the biggest, one of the biggest lessons that I learned was if, you know, even though I was just a corporal, my sergeant gave me full, full run of them. You know, he said to me, Chris Dindle said from the start, this is your casualty. Um, gave him an opportunity. It was my first opportunity to show what I could do. Because uh, I was a junior corporal at that stage, and I went into a senior corporal position, and um, they looked, they you know, they wanted people to go to those smaller units with a bit of bit of credence behind you, I suppose, um, that you'd already, you know, you'd already shown what you're capable of as a junior leader, and you had some experience. And I went in there just after being promoted to corporal, so uh, I learned some real fast lessons working with the cab boys, and and I, you know, the valuable lessons and I think the, the biggest one for me was that if I'm in charge I've got to be really clear and direct with what mm-hmm. what I needed done before I got there uh, you know some people complain how hard it you know how it is to get information through when you're talking to people but face to face but over the radio it's very difficult because mm-hmm. you don't have a full situation aware like situational awareness on what's on the ground you you know you i was operating off what they were telling me and you know in that hour and a half that took for us to get there that's a long time yeah um so i had to be uh empowered by what my teammates were telling me um and i think that's a valuable lesson as a leader if if we're not on the ground you've got you've got to trust what's been presented um I think the other thing was for me, if I didn't know my job uh, to the very best that I, I could at that stage in my career, then there was no way that I could have delivered the information that was required to save his life. Mm-hmm. You know, making heavy calls like taking his helmet off. And and we get taught, we were taught very early on in a medical career, you know, rolled ankles, leave the boot on. Uh, any injuries involving helmets and vehicles and stuff, leave the helmet mm. on because it, it provides a bit of structure around the head. Uh, you know, and those sort of calls I had to make blind. But mm. I think if we don't interpret the information that's given to us by the people on the ground, things can go badly really quickly. Uh, the other thing too is 
you know, being that corporal, having that situation handed to me, I had to be good. I had to be very good because uh, the reality is that we would have lost a soldier that day uh, in a training incident, high range. And the backlash from losing someone in a training environment is uh, the army's got a really good knee jerk reaction thing where they'll, they'll just stop training everywhere and, and then everything gets investigated, but they'll do it across the board, which is a good thing. You know, that's, I'll never begrudge people doing that. And they did do that after that incident, you know, that, they did stop training and we, we went through that whole process. Mm. Um, I suppose the other thing I'm, you know, I, I took away from that day being a leader is if, if I'm not a hundred percent, uh, I don't know what the word is here, but if I'm not, um, if I don't buy in a hundred percent to that situation, I could have missed a lot of things. Um, and my ear, I learned, the other thing I learned, my ear had to be on the radio at all times because if I hadn't picked up the wrong grid, and I was always mm-hmm. had a notebook. If I hadn't picked that up early, then we could have been another hour looking for them because uh, the terrain was pretty rough. So, you know, being able to listen, being able to lead over, you know, a distance and trust your team is something that, you know, every leader I think needs to understand because it's one thing to be in control of the situation and it's mm-hmm. another thing to have situation awareness on the ground and be in control, which I think you guys know better than most. This is fascinating. Uh- it's not often do we talk to a leader who has this spotlight shined on them in this in this particular case through the communications that you were using where you had no eyes, you only had ears and a mouth and anyone who was on that radio network could hear you communicating. What's yep. the secret to good leadership communications in situations that are high pressure? where you need to be convincing and give clear direction? Yeah, good question. Uh, For me, it is being clear and concise. And that's something that the Army teaches you really uh, well when it comes to how you deliver your orders. And in order to deliver good orders, you've got to understand the information that's presented to you. Uh, And you can be blinded. Like, you can have no visual um, on that situation, but as long as the information that's coming through to you is clear, you've got to take that on board. Um, and I like to write things down. So I used, I always had my notebook, uh, you know, and writing things down in a high pressure situation where if you, if you don't do that, the risk that you would give the wrong information back because you miss something or you misunderstand something that's been delivered to you, uh, is, is really high. Um, and as a medic, we can't afford to have those situations where we misinterpret information. So for me, writing it down was something that I learned, uh, very early on in my career from some very good medics, um, Stu Robertson, stuff like that. You know, Stu Robertson was an ex, um, SAS medic and he's based one of the godfathers of medical. Um, and I love him to bits, but he said to me at the start of my career, you make sure you write things down, um, which, in that, you know, in that situation, uh, it helped a lot. Uh, being able to write it down and giving myself an opportunity to take a breath, read what I've written down, seek further clarification if needed. We can't rush in those situations. And, you know, for me, by taking a breath, um, when you feel under pressure, which is something that we get taught really well as medics, take your own pulse, even if it takes you 30 seconds to just you know, go over what you've been told. It's mm. really important. I think 
we forget that sometimes in life where we rush through to make decisions without taking a breath. Um, but yeah, you know, that's the sort of stuff that, you know, built, built that day for me is stopping and listening and, and taking a breath and, and making sure I understood everything. Note taking. I actually yep. think that leaders are losing this art of collecting information on a notepad and not just collecting information for their own consumption, but preparing to deliver a message. And Ben, you talk about a situation in Afghanistan where you were taking notes ahead of a casualty evacuation. Mm. But when we walk into boardrooms, it's very rare that you see leaders taking notes. It's nearly like there's a stigma associated with writing something down or looking at a palm card, that it's a sign of weakness in a leader. Yep. What do you think? Yeah. I think in, in general, that idea of actually committing something to paper and the act of doing it, um, you know, you can extend it to things like journaling and reflecting and, you know, it is a big part of formulating an idea. Um, I think 100% what you said, Coco, the, you know, particularly in emotional situations, you forget stuff and mm. your mind's racing a million miles an hour and, and you form different memories, you know, from uh, the same information. And so that act of writing things down on the spot um, is reinforcing all of those things. It's it's capturing the information. It helps to codify your thought processes. And I think it does also exactly what you said, and I'm, I'm so... 100% behind what you said about, um, you know, taking that breath and just reflecting. And it, it feels like an eternity and you feel the weight of the world on, on people wanting a decision. But to be able to emotionally regulate, think, reflect, and then make a decision with some sort of rationality in an emotional situation, um, yeah, a, a massive leadership quality. And Coco, maybe that's the reason why... As junior leaders in the military, they condition you to never going anywhere without a notebook and pen. I mean, what used to happen on courses if you didn't have a notebook and pen? Mm -hmm. Press-ups. <laughs> Lots of them. Yeah. yeah, mate. It's. I think it's an art that we're losing. Uh, it, like even today, I walk into the barracks and, and, and I think technology um, has a big thing to do with it. Everything's on your phone now. So, But the, the problem with that is you're looking at a screen and mm. uh, there's no, there's no connection for me writing stuff down. There's an emotional connection because you're writing it down as you hear it. And then you've got mm. an opportunity to look back. I've still got notebooks from situations in Iraq where, you know, being a, um, a company medic for me was the best position that I'd ever been involved with it's it's a position where you've got to look up like squadron medics are kilos you know some of my closest mates ben grumley and mm -hmm. um and people like that so being in the control of the, of the medical health of, of your mates and i took that to heart you know my mates mean everything to me and you know we've lost a few boys and i i um I found that writing things down and being involved in the orders groups and having a different perspective because it's easy to look up and go, well, that was a shit decision. Mm. And now it's turned into shit on the ground, you know, in the middle of Iraq and we're surrounded or we're, we're going to be cleaned up from over this side or hitting us on the flank or they've got high ground and we're, we're you know, sitting ducks. But having an opportunity to be in the planning for um, some major operations in Iraq as a company medic really opened my eyes up to the pressure that's put on you guys as leaders which meant that that was heaped on us as leaders too, as junior leaders. We had to make some really, really high-pressure situation decisions in a really short amount of time. 
um, and as medics, I don't think they talk about it enough nowadays. And being involved with the School of Health now is flying in to speak to all new medics and new officers of logistics corps. It's something that I've pushed them to remember that writing things down might give you that extra minute to really, really mm. understand what's going on, especially because medics aren't the first people in that situation. You know, we all too often we find that the medics are at the back of a patrol or they're already tied up with some other task when someone gets hit and you've got first responders that are their teammates. You know, mm. it's, it's a world that we're pulling away from the old notebook and pen. Um, and because of technology, which no one's to blame. It's just the way the world is. But I still write things down. I mean, I, I've got a notebook sitting here that I have uh, written down stuff for this podcast. I've got notebooks I have in my car and I've got a diary that sits in my car the whole time and I have, you know, a diary on my phone. I'm always writing things down. The only problem is I forget which notebook I write things down in. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm in the shit with Tab because she's just like, did you write it down? I'm like, yep. And she goes, where? And I'm like, I don't know, bub. <laughs> At least it's somewhere though, Coco. At least That's it's exactly written down right. somewhere. Yeah. And I think it's a lesson that we all have to learn. That just <laughs> just write things down. Just get used to doing it. I have to. My memory shit, you know. Like after everything that I've been through and with age, I turned 40 the other day. I'm pretty sure I lost half my brain cells just by turning 40 <laughs> and all this, you know. But if, if you take the time to write things down, it gives you a little bit more perspective on a situation, but it also gives you time to think about a response that's you take the emotional side out of it and medics because we're so the good ones we're so we buy in so much we're so emotionally attached to the people we look after that it's really hard to separate and i find that writing things down gives you an opportunity to separate emotion from those decisions Coco, okay, okay. we don't want to take anything away from the nursing service cross that's an incredible achievement and you're a worthy recipient but i'm curious just to think about other situations you've been in that might have been as challenging or perhaps more challenging. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit, a little bit about anything else that um, you've experienced where there was profound pressure on you as a leader and or as a medic to deal with a particular situation? Yeah, I think, you know, looking back to Afghanistan, uh, treating kids is something that I've really, really, I don't like treating kids, you know. Uh, East Timor, we saw some pretty horrific situations um, with kids, um, you know, big infections, lung infections, all that sort of stuff. But I think the significant part for me was after I started having kids, I went to Iraq with two young kids and treating kids over there was just, a, it just gave it a whole new meaning for me. And it, it tore me up inside. There was a situation in Afghanistan, um, uh, in 2011 where, um, it was supposed to be a day of, of no patrolling and stuff. Um, and the patrol base Muhammad, which was just down the road from us, the the ANA decided they were going to go on patrol, and we heard a whole heap of shooting. Uh, they had a um, one of those massive, um, what do they call them, the recordless rifles mounted mm. on the back of the truck. We heard that booming away, and we're trying to find out what's going on because it's supposed to be a rest day for them. And over the radio, they kept saying that they were shooting at enemy, and uh, uh, enemy uh, Taliban, and and. And we were, so everyone stood too. And um, about an hour and a half after it wound down, and we found out that we sent a patrol out, and they, they found out there's no enemy in the area. They actually mistook some locals for enemy. And this guy came in 
with his son in a in a wheelbarrow, and he'd been to Muhammad and they turned him away, uh, and he got to ours about an hour and a half after this young boy had been shot, um, and I think the hardest thing as a medic when it comes to decision making is timelines are blown out or they're really short, mm-hmm. so. We, we sent a nine-liner off immediately and he was in a bad way. Uh, his body was compensating heavily. Um, so we had to basically try and stop the bleeding uh, and keep an airway. And then he started to fit. And I was, you know, on the phone with the doctor, just, you know, getting permission to push some drugs to help him with his fitting. And um, the chopper was coming in. So I would have had this young kid for about, uh, eight minutes and we carried him out to the chopper and I'm pretty happy that Ben Ben Grumley uh, Nathan Grumley sort of Nathan Grumley was the was the medic on the chopper mm. we did the handover and I think the hardest thing for me was making those decisions in that compressed time frame um, which is something as leaders we get trained to do but I don't think we really push enough uh, and it sort of drove the way I trained especially after Iraq that whenever I ran medical training I would really push um and give them that real sense that they had limited time um under fire the chopper was landing like get your shit together let's go Mm. um and that idea that an an 80 percent solution on time is better than trying to wait for this perfect amount of information and all the things you need to know i mean sometimes you have to make those decisions in an imperfect information environment Exactly, mate. And, and you know, we, it, it, I think the language barrier uh, puts a lot more pressure on you because uh, we're, we've got the interpreter talking to the dad to find out any information. He's, and, you know, their whole thing over there is, Emshallah, it's God's will, it's okay. And I'm like, this is a kid. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm, yeah. we worked our asses off and, and they looked, you know, everyone's looking at me and, uh, you know, I can't show that I'm lost. Um, of how we're going to pull this kid back because I knew that he was not, he was not in a really good way. Um, so we, I just, uh, you know, that leadership thing there where you're taught any decision you make is a step in the right direction. Mm. Uh, and we can't start breaking it down to good and bad decisions. You know, afterwards when you have a, a little bit of time to process and you get to talk through what happened, that's when you can go, well, you know, maybe we should have done this. But in that situation, I had eight minutes to make some really big calls you know, get information across to the, to the radio uh, with his nine liner and then make some really big calls on what sort of drugs I could give him could have been the damage to his body. Uh, plus he was a kid. So, you, you know, all them things, how much can I give him? Why am I giving it? Can I give him this? Have to race through my head. Mm. Am I providing him with the best opportunity to live? Uh, so thankfully Nathan was, was the one that I handed over to. Uh, and then I said to him, I said to Nathan, I remember this clearly, um, after I'd broke down, you know, where he'd been hit by these recallless rifle rounds and he, he was in a fair bit of, he was in a bad way. And I said, mate, uh, and he was fitting. And I said, this, you got to give him this, uh, to help with his fitting. I said, but as soon as you do, he is going to go into cardiac arrest. So, and like this, you have to give it but the risk is he's going to go into cardiac arrest just because of the way his body had, he'd lost a lot of blood and he was compensating heavily. And Nathan is, you know, he's one of the most calm, calmest blokes I've ever met. Um, he just looked at me and he goes, I got it, bro. And jumped on and 
ended up doing CPR for eight minutes back into TK. Um, and then I, he rang me uh, an hour and a half later and said, sorry, mate, we, we lost this kid. Uh, and it broke me really hard. You know, I actually made a phone call to Tam and I was in tears and she was like, mm. Bob, what's going on? I said, I just, I just lost a kid. Like, uh, and blame myself for it too, because I felt like I could have done a lot more for him. And I think that's, you know, as medics, we invest so much into saving lives um, mm. we, that we're never really prepared when we lose it, regardless if it's an Australian soldier or an American soldier or British, you know, that, or uh, just a local, you know, that, and, you know, that broke me, broke me um, right down the middle. And, um, mm. you know, Tam, Tam is, you know, she went to Interfet and she treated kids and, and you know, lost kids and stuff like that and saw some of the worst things and she said bubby you, you can't dwell on this you've got to keep moving you've you've still got you know you've still got seven months to go for this deployment like this isn't something that you can get over straight away but you just have to push it aside um mm. and really help me get back on my feet but knowing that uh, after speaking to ben and then our doctor nick gray that we'd done everything that we could have possibly done for that kid um you know, gave me some peace that we'd given him a chance. Mm. Um, so, Coco, we've spoken a lot about um, some of the amazing stuff you've done to save people's lives, including uh, the the action for which you're awarded the, the Nursing Service Cross. On that same rotation in 2011, you very unfortunately found yourself on the receiving end of medical treatment. Can you talk us through that event and yeah. um, how that essentially changed your life? Yep. So, um, you know, still shocks a lot of people. It's still the best day of my life. Um, <laughs> and people find it hard to, to sort of fathom how I can speak like that. So we, we, uh, I was actually on the phone to Tam. I just set my new laptop up, my old faithful from Iraq. Um, that got me through some dust storms and everything in Iraq <laughs> had finally given up the ghost. You know, that was, a, I love that little machine. It, it, you know, a lot of movies spent, you know, um, watching movies in Iraq and gaming and stuff like that. And, and especially for video calls back with Tam and the kids. Um, and my new, my new laptop had arrived. I'd only been in TK a couple of days previously, hanging out with um, Nathan and your brother, Dan, mm -hmm. uh, before they got ripped, you know, they ripped out. And uh, that was really cool. I got to catch up with a lot of the boys there. I met some really cool people. Um, Cam Baird was up there. I met some really cool Navy SEAL dudes, you know, that, and it sticks out that, that, you know, to go from such a high to where it went a couple of days later. Hmm. Um, but I was on the phone to Tam and we're having a good old chat. And I said, look, I've set, set new laptop up. I'll, I'll Skype you this afternoon with the kids. They're out on some adventures with grandma and pa. And I said, yeah, I'll Skype you this afternoon, bub. Um, probably around three o'clock my time, which I said, oh, I think we were five hours or behind or something over there to where they were in Australia, five and a half hours, something like that. And um, I said, I'll Skype the kids. No worries. And as I was talking to her, just getting an update, massive explosion. We're like, shit. I said, look, bub, I got to go. Uh, I got a job on. I need to go and I'll talk to you later. Um, and she, you know, we always talked about any incidents like that as a game of cricket. I've got to go play some cricket, bub. And, you know, because you can't talk about much and we mm. shot out. I just got dressed in my gear and went straight into the boss's, into the boss and, uh, and uh, Tony Bennett. And I said, I'm going. Uh, he was on the phone. He didn't really want me to go. And by rights, I probably shouldn't have gone, given that um, as a medic, uh, 
and being a sergeant in a company medic position uh, and having the resus, uh, the, uh, uh, the resupply run just roll in with the medic, I probably should have sent someone else, but I just said, no, I'm doing this. It's one of our medics was in the vehicle that had been hit. Um, I said, I'm going. So I didn't give him a chance to say yes or no. I just walked in and said, see boss, I'm out and walked out and he's on the phone trying to get information through and he just looked and he's trying to stop me and I'm like, see, I'm done. <laughs> uh, and I cruised out and um, jumped in the vehicle, ended up on the rear gun. We had no, uh, no one in the back of our car uh, and we were cruised out to where the car had been hit. Um, 25 kilo improvised explosive device, IED, uh, had gone off in the front uh, under the engine and blew the engine out and, and did a fair bit of damage and knocked, knocked the boys out inside the car and engineers, uh, crew commander, driver and, and the rear gunner. Um, and we had a few engineers to replace him in our little convoy and we replaced him and I made the decision to load him in the back of my car and we'll take him back to TK uh, to do a further assessment and then get him off to, I'll take him back to patrol base Wally and then get him to TK. Uh, and I'll stick by that decision. Um, even today, looking back, I believe I made the right one. And as we turned around, we ended up being first in the order of March um, because you know the roads are real tight over there. Mm. And you have to do a 65-point turn to get around. Um, Especially, were you in Bushmasters at this yeah, stage? Yeah, we were in Bushmasters, yep. yeah. And uh, we we turned around and, and we went about, we had about um, probably a K to 12, 1,200 metres to travel back to the patrol base. We went a couple of hundred metres up the road. Command pulled the vice. He had a kite string and he just pulled it so the wires attached. And second time that device had been found in our part of the country, um, in the Mirabad Valley. And uh, I remember what I was talking about. I remember um, I just switched the gun back to the high side. Uh, it, was, it's like a, it was sort of a big hill to our left as we were going back and there's some houses along the ridge line and I'd just switched the gun back and I'd done a, a scan and you, know, you point the weapon to where you're going and I tucked it in and just went along the side of the road, which is a lesson I learned from Iraq and the British EAD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Guys. Check the gutters, essentially, um, mm. were just beside the road. And, and I just, it was just part of my routine that I'd learned. So I pulled it in and looked down. And as I got to the rear wheel, I remember a bright flashing light, uh, a massive explosion, and then... Uh, our vehicle got thrown 10 metres and I went 30 metres out of the rear hatch and landed on my head. Um, uh, and the next thing I remember is three shadows standing over me. Uh, but in that time, there was probably eight minutes elapsed by the time they realised that I wasn't in the car. The driver from the previous vehicle's back had buckled again. Um, everybody was, they call it, you know, the movies call it the fog of war, but it's a real thing. You know, you get blown up or you're in, you're in vicinity of a blast. It takes you a couple of seconds to reorientate. Mm. They, they figured out I wasn't in the car. They went looking for me. They saw me on the side of the road, um, 20 meters up the road. And I was lying on my left side. My left boot was near my head. Mm. My mate said he looked at me and thought I was dead. Um, then I took a deep, I rolled on my back and took a deep breath. And he said, the first thing I remember was the top half of my hand had completely folded over the back. So my hand, he was looking at the, my fingers, the white side of my hand. And he said, I'll never forget that. And you took a deep breath and then went for your tourniquet. Uh, so they, they searched, a, they searched to me and cleared around me, uh, and had three AFAs, army first aiders, uh, treat me for 40 minutes. And they did an outstanding job. 
um, to this day, you know, I talk about the importance of Army First Aid and how much it's grown since, you know, we first got Army First Aid back in the day. Um, and then the uh, combat first aider got searched in and he had me for nearly two hours. Uh, and then the medic got there, who I just high-fived a couple of hours before coming into our patrol base on a resupply <laughs> run. And I said, look, mate, computer set up, Skype your missus, call her, like do whatever you need to do. And he had me for six minutes and he said the first two minutes he could get answers out of me. I was groaning a lot in pain and, you know, in a hell of a lot of pain. Enemy was still in the area, which was the scary thing for the boys that they're running along the ridge top. So they're worried about that secondary follow-up. It was the second strike of the day. They had 36 strikes in the Miribad Valley, I was told later, um, by um, our boss, Tony Bennett. Um, and he said, you know, like he just, was talking to me and I kept asking what was wrong and then he was checking my leg um, and there was nothing and he looked back and I was gone. I nil signs of life for four minutes. They put me on the chopper, nil signs of life. Spontaneously um, spontaneously came back, um, just opened my eyes in the, chop, in the chopper and we landed at TK and I was on the table five and a half hours with, with all the medics and nurses that I'd helped to train and, um, you know, that was a tough time for them and, to see me come in uh, and to their knowledge, just, you know, they heard all the radio calls, they're listening to the radio about nil signs of life. They didn't know who it was. One of the girls went outside and it was, everyone was there. There's a few of the boys were down there from up the top where you guys lived. Um, and she looked at the CSM, Ralphie Sewer, and she said, so what's going on? Like, what are you all doing down here? And he said, do you know who it is? She goes, that's Aussie soldier, you know, we're getting ready for it. He goes, no, it's just Coco. Like, you know, it's this not just as this is Coco and she spewed a ring up like she turned around and vomited and uh, she was like, are you serious? And he's, yep. Um, walked back in and said, doc, this is Coco. Like Coco's coming in. And there was, cause there was a lot of confusion about who, mm. who was treating in the lead up to that. Everyone thought that I was sending all the information back about what happened. And they had to sort of break protocol on the radio and say, you know, who's, who's treating like, who's the, we know Coco's the medic, but who's, is he like, who's he treating? And it, and it took them to say, no, Coco's a casualty. Like mm. he's the one who's been blown up. Um, which when you look back, it's like, that's surreal. It's pretty funny, you know? And it's sort of, there's a big lesson to be learnt there. Uh, we never trained for medics to get hit. We never <laughs> trained for the CFA to get hit. We pro even, you know, without, without, um, Without training before we went overseas, it was always that someone to get hit and it wasn't the medical CFA because we'd save lives. Mm. We're the angels on, you know, and the choppers and stuff. And that's, you know, it's a massive lesson that I, I took into my training afterwards. Um, yeah, five and a half hours. Um, so I remember that flash. I remember three shadows standing over me. The weird thing was I'd had that vision for six weeks before I left. Uh, my mum, Fiji, and she gets visions. Um, and I had them for six weeks. I was waking up in the middle of the night with cold sweats and just seeing three shadows. And that's the exact vision I had on that day. That's exactly what happened. And it sticks in my mind. And I never talked to mum about it because I didn't want mum worrying. And I never told Tam because, you know, afterwards when I did tell her, she said I would have run you over to stop you from going. <laughs> <laughs> so it would have ended up in the same place then. Um, so and then... Yeah. Sorry, mate. I, I was just going to say five and a half hours on the table. Yeah. And then to Germany? Uh, and then into surgery for about 11 hours. So they right. had to 
um, the risk was that I was going to lose my whole left leg, my right leg knee down, and my left arm just above the elbow, um, you mm-hmm. know, like, and the top of my hand. So the surgeons that were there with the American um, military, he was actually an Australian that married an American girl, <laughs> moved to the States and joined the American uh, military, I think. I think Air Force. Uh, yeah, so I was lying on the table and I remember turning to Bernie Sarong and saying, just give me a kiss on the cheek, bub, just so I can close my eyes and, and think about Tam. And um, she was like, what do you mean? I said, well, look, you know, everyone's telling me I'm 50-50 coming out of this, but just give me a kiss because if, if I'm going to go, I'd rather have that vision in my head that my wife is going to give me a kiss. Um, so she did. Um <laughs> And what I didn't realise afterwards and what I, I got told later, you know, once we had some time to, to sort of process everything, everybody came through and gave me a kiss on the cheek and I have no recollection of anything on my left side. Um, but she said, I wasn't the only one, Koga, they gave me a kiss on the cheek. Like, the Americans came through, the Aussies, you know, like um, she said, there were some dudes from up the top from your world that were there that they, and they'll never admit that they gave me a kiss, but she said they did like, you know, these, these are pretty staunch dudes that came in tooled up from their mission and were like, this is Coco, get out of the way. Um, gave me a kiss in the cheek. Very good mate of mine, Gavaldos. He was there working my airways and, and, um, you know, those special things from that day that I will always remember. Um, uh, yeah, and, and 11, 11 and a half hours on the, on the resource table and I lost, went, I died in there and, they brought me back and came out of that, went to Kandahar and they scanned and realized they found I'd broken my right leg, um, shattered two vertebrae on my back, uh, amongst everything else that had happened, traumatic brain injury. And then we went from there to, to Germany. Uh, so I died three times before I got to Germany and I was, I remember landing in Germany and this is something that sticks in my head, you know, like uh, I was the most seriously injured soldier on that flight and, and that, and that, C-17 was stacked mm. um, and I was the last one off the plane first one into surgery but everyone that came off that plane had missing limbs mm. so for me I'm like how am I the most serious injured I've got everything <laughs> but I said to the nurse have I got everything and he said yeah mate <laughs> Cam Brockle and I said mate I'm a married man so if I haven't got everything <laughs> I, I, I mean everything <laughs> I will come back if I said if I'm missing a toenail I'll come back and hunt you down and he said Coco you got everything bro like you've, you you haven't lost anything I'm like good uh, I end up losing some bone from my left leg on the side of the road and they can keep it <laughs> so like, yeah. oh you don't got to go back and get it <laughs> yeah no nah, go back and collect no oh mate they, they can keep that it's um <laughs> So I went into surgery over there to save my leg. And uh, so, you know, it was, I think the dates are significant too. 13th of August, I got blown up. 15th landed in Germany. 16th, I woke up in Germany. It was my 31st birthday. And the head surgeon said, happy birthday. And I said, get fucked. <laughs> Who are you? And uh, I looked to my right and there's one of my old RSMs, um, Roy Richardson, sitting there. And he's like, hey, mate. I'm like, what are you doing here? And then I look around and there's uh, an American anesthetist that I'd worked with in Iraq that uh, was coming off a double shift when I got wheeled into surgery and turned back around and re-clocked on and said to a head surgeon, I've got this, I'll do this. He's one of my mates. 
So I woke up to him sitting in a chair asleep beside me and head surgeon saying happy birthday. And I was confused and I was like, who, who the hell are you? And I don't know you and you're wishing me happy birthday. And I'm like, what are you doing here, Richo? And um, they're like, dude, you know where you are? I'm like, no. And I tried to sit up and they're like, you can't sit up, mate. You just got to lie still. And I was like, can you just get away from me? I just want to sit up. So you can't sit up, mate. So I'm looking down, both arms are bandaged up. And they said, mate, you've, you've got a broken back. You need to stop. You need to stay still. My left leg had a big halo on the side of it, um, external fixation. My right leg was all bandaged up and in a splint. And I couldn't move. And I was like, what's going on? Um, and yeah, you know, and then a 17th Tamarot, um, which, you know, for me was, was a real, real emotional uh, mm-hmm. reunion uh, because of, you know, I, she said the first thing I said was, sorry, bub, like black man can't mm-hmm. fly. Um, we can fly we just can't stick the landing Um, uh, and then she said I apologised and she couldn't she why are you apologising and then I told her why you know had those visions and you know had a feeling that this wasn't going to be the best trip that I'd ever done and um, I didn't talk to her about it and she she was like you don't need to apologise like she said as soon as you got that phone call from 2RER and she knew that they were going to ask me because they rang her and Tony Bennett rang her and said, you know, we want to ask him to come over just to get some experience behind us. And she said, if he's going over, he has to be in your company. So he switched a few things when he was Edge and put him me into Alpha Company and moved Alpha Company Medic away. And, you know, we built a really good team around it. But, uh, yeah, fast forward to now, 32 surgical procedures to, to be where I am. But I think... I think the shining light is it's still the best day of my life. You know, it's one of them days where it, I treat it like I just got married to Tam and just had my kids, you know, like I don't see that it's a bad day um, because of what happened that day. I mean, it, I have a picture from one of my mates and he sent it me a couple of years ago and took him that long to send it to me. And he said, uh, I don't know if, I didn't know how to send it to you or why I should send it to you. But sort of just wanted to ask you if you'd like a picture and I'm like, send it mate. He had a video of me getting loaded on the chopper, but he sent a picture when he pulled up and I'd just been announced nil signs of life. And there's a really good picture taken out at the front right door of the bushy. Um, he was driving and he's just snapped a picture of the team working on me. Um, and you can see my hand in it. I'll have to send it to you, but mm-hmm. uh, I think you know, I've used that picture when I do some of my speaking stuff because for me, it epitomizes what the Australian Army is all about. Number one is mateship. Number two is is how well we can communicate in arduous situations. You know, when adversity strikes, we have some of the best first responders in the world that will t- that will go into anything and rationally break down information and make really good decisions. I was a corporal on the radio and he was amazing. Uh, it shows the medic, um, you know, moving around me it's got the team around me they just they just went into action and i think if you know i use that to 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 sort of break that negativity around that day for me and for everyone around it that it's a beautiful thing to witness teamwork in a in a in a bad situation i mean Mm. you guys i was lucky enough to help train some of you boys to go overseas in a medical sense and it's a beautiful thing to see well-trained fighting men go through their drills you know and to sit back and be able to watch that and then go 
how do I critique this and have to find something within to be able to critique something that looks amazing. Uh, but remember that if I stay in my lane, then I can help, you know, pass on some really good knowledge. And that's what that picture is all about for me mm. is that it's a celebration of teamwork and, and mateship. And that's what got me through. So 13th of August, 2011, what most of us would consider just the worst day in the office possible. Mm. You've just described as one of the best days of your life. Can you expand on what you've got out of that? You've just spoken about the the beauty of seeing the team uh, in action and this this idea of, of really professional soldiers doing their jobs. What about you personally from that event and from the amazing journey of recovery that you've had? What what have you learned about yourself and maybe others that, that could be instructive from that day? Yeah, uh, I think the first thing that I've learned is mateship will transcend everything. Uh, and if I wasn't the type of person that I was through my whole career where I love meeting new people and, and being involved in, in lessons, you know, around what I do for a living. But, the, you know, that mateship that I developed with so many people across so many spectrums of the army, um, it dwelled into both sides, you know, because I, I clearly see uh, there's two sides to the army and that's it, the, your side of the fence and our side of the fence. And, and that fence isn't a division in my mind. That fence is just a separation to delineate the, the level of skill that you guys develop because you train all the time. Mm. And conventional army... Yeah, we train, but not to the level that you guys do, you know, and I think that's important for us to remember. But the fact that my mates, that it was our third trip together um, and I'd been medic for them for two trips previously and I'd made a promise that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't uh, lose any of my mates if, if it came down to it, that I would, I'd rather give myself before I see them, you know, not come back. Um. But the fact that my mates were there treating me, that I'd mm. known and loved for a long time and we'd met early in our careers, uh, you know, that's the biggest lesson that I took from that is that, you know, no matter what happens, my mates were always willing to put themselves in front of me um, and that, you know, no matter what, they're going to have a crack. Mm. The other thing I've learned is um, resilience. And I know that we touched on, we're going to talk about the stuff mm. and, and, you know, we'll probably break it down a bit more. But for me, I have a different view on life because I've been on the other side three times. Um, and for me, resilience is there's three parts to it. There's a mental side, a physical side, and an emotional side. And in order to build resilience, we've got to, you know, when you find yourself in, in adversity, resilience is built after adversity hits. Resilience is something that can be trained. It's a skill. And it's slope behavior. So if something happens and you give up, you're breaking your resilience down. Uh, in my mind, I think it's just the worst thing you can do is give up because something gets hard. But, you know, I think the most important part to take away is you can't treat resilience as a single foundation. There's three parts to it. And for me, um, I'd already been through that post-traumatic stress phase after Iraq, which set me up for success really when I look back for what happened in Afghanistan. Um, you know, being able to, to, to rebuild my shield after Iraq, uh, and I, I use the metaphor as a shield for my for resilience because 
I think everybody has a shield that they put up, which is the you know shield of resilience, which is I've got a book I'm writing, you know, with all my stuff and I'm calling it broken shield. Um, but certain things will get through and punch you in the heart. You know, the big things, you lose a loved one, mm. um, someone, you know, killed in action, whatever. Um, there's other things that'll just dent your shield. Um, it's a heavy knock, but you can sort of pick yourself up again and drops you to your knee. Um, there's other things that'll scratch it, you know, everyday things that we've got to push you in, the, in our work life, business life, home life, you know, between mates, you're going to have those scuffles. But sometimes in life, your shield's going to get shattered uh, and it's going to be at an emotional, physical and mental level uh, and you need all three to break at the same time. And I think that's what PTSD does to us is that breaks us mentally, emotionally and physically because we go to that negative state when nothing's positive and we can't hear positive voices. So you've got to rebuild your shield from scratch again. Um, and I've done that with the, with you know being having gone through that post traumatic stress, which I think everybody who's in the military will go through at some stage in their life, um, and that's okay. Like that's part of who we are. We, we can't be strong all the time, uh, which is an interesting. I took from your uh, something I took from your podcast, uh, Ben, when you talked about your your um, selection thing. You can't be strong all the time. You know when you did selection, you saw people that tried to be strong the whole time. Sure, you can't do that. You know you're going to break at some point. That's what you know. That's that's part of of learning about our resilience and our rebuilding of our resilience and our shield. Mm. Um, but you can train resilience. So physically, you can train your physical resilience. You can you can keep in uh, you know tackling harder PT sessions, which is something the army does a lot. They they smash you. You know, like we'll do group PT and we'll go for a 10k run, but you've got to carry your pack and you've got to run up that hill and you've got to carry water bottles and water jerrys and push a rover with no wheel on it because that's <laughs> that's fun apparently um and you know every time that you achieve some some success where you complete a hard session and then you go back again the following day that's 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 building your physical resilience every time you break down something in, in when, when it, with regards to mental resilience and you have something that knocks you around every time you find a way through you're, you're retraining your brain um you know which is where you create good habits so you, you're building your mental resilience. And emotionally, you, if you say as a man you don't cry, you're a liar. Um, mm. I cry. Um, I've had things that hit me hard and I break down. But, you know, it's a really good emotional breakthrough and, and a release. And if after you do that, you can break it down and go, well, you know, I know why it hit me that hard. And I understand what it looks like now from the other side. Um, I know what I'll be walking into next time. You train your emotional resilience. Um, so those are the two main things. I think mm. the other thing is family. Uh, I've always put a family first with any decision I make when I was in the army. I would love to serve with you guys, but I knew that would take me away from my family. You know, um, I watch what you guys do. I watch, you know, I go to Sydney and stay with Nath and, watching kiss his wife goodbye every morning it broke me i'd go sit in the car and just have tears i'd be like hmm. how do you do that bro like every day he said yeah it's normal for us i was like how can that be normal you say goodbye to your loved ones every day like but that's the world that you guys live in and for me that's not for me so family is something that you know even after that day even after going through ptsd and we take things out of our family without noting noticing that ourselves and just take somebody else to say you you know you're being a dick you need to pull your head in um and i'm blessed because i've got uh, a beautiful wife and two great kids that will tell me like they just tell me all the time you're being a dick dad 
yeah, sweet, no worries. I'll just reassess what I'm doing then, you know. And, you know, there's there's probably about a dozen more emotional and uh, um, lessons that we could pull out of this whole thing. But those three are the big things for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I don't hold them first and uh, if, I, if I don't hold them out in my hand every day, then I, I feel like I'm letting myself down mm-hmm. and my mates. We um, mentioned before we came on air that, that there's a, I mean, the world is small, the military is an even smaller circle, but we, we share some mutual connections. Uh, Monica Georgieva, who we've had on the show a couple of times and, and who we have the pleasure of doing some work with now, um, one of her platoon sergeants, when she was an infantry platoon commander, um, shares a connection with you through a company called Swiss 8. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about Swiss 8 as a company and what it means to be an ambassador for them? Yeah, so uh, Swiss 8 was developed by Adrian Sutter and, and Anthony Meixner, or Mex as we call him. Uh, and what happened was, um, I suppose it was a big process too, because it took probably 10 years for them to develop the idea and, and get it to where they wanted it to be. But we just got sick of seeing our mates committing suicide and they couldn't mm-hmm. see a way out. And I think the biggest thing when you leave the military is you fall out of routine. Everyone does. You leave the military, it's a bit of a celebration. You grow your hair long and grow a beard and, and uh, you fall away from your routine a bit. And they saw this real, uh, real um, up-to-date platform that could heap, keep you in, in, in a routine and develop your routine mm-hmm. and build your mental, emotional, physical strength uh, so that you, you know and understand what good health is in all three of those areas. But then you can recognise when something's not quite right and then they've got a whole heap of things that you can go and do. Um, and they asked me to be an ambassador a couple of years ago and I jumped at the chance straight away because, uh, I love the podcast. Uh, I love the platform itself being an app. Everyone's on their phones. Like we discussed before, no one takes notes. They can just record it on their phone or, you know, everything's done on their phone. So it's an easy accessible, um, uh, thing and, and it helps people. Like I've, I've seen it really help a lot of people around Towsville and, and, you know, Queensland where we sort of launched, um, but being an ambassador gave me an opportunity to use my story in a positive light, um, mm. to tell about the, you know, the greatest day of my life or one of the greatest days of my life and really push that platform where it's okay to have a bad day, but what's not okay is let it beat you every time. Mm. And, 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 you know, first and foremost in my mind, if I let all this stuff beat me from getting blown up, then Taliban win. That's, that's my mindset is I'm, um, you know, and I'm the hardest mother ever in the in the room and that's the attitude i have to have every day because i wake up in pain 24 7 i have uh, high pain levels and i'm never going to get rid of them um but i have to have that attacking focus and that's part of life for me is that i have to live with that pain and i'm prepared to so by giving that platform to tell my story in a positive light and use the principles around swiss 8 um to help people get it back into routine and find their path again uh that's that's an awesome message mm-hmm. to give out and i feel humbled and grateful to be able to do that um yeah so you know swiss 8 if if you haven't downloaded it i mean get to swiss8.org download the app it's free it's for everyone you don't have to have any military service we're pushing out to first responders and general public you know just get on it and and have a look because it might not work for you but at least there's some ideas that mm-hmm. you can sort of push through and find mm. why the yeah. name swiss 8 ignorant question well, that's the, you know, one question I asked at the start was, why did you call it Swiss 8? So uh, Adrian Sutter is half Swiss and he was in Switzerland, uh, he was over there and he's sitting on a mountaintop 
and he was trying to think of a name and he just had an epiphany that Swiss is neutral. You know, we're not going to bend to follow politics or, or personal view. It's got to be neutral because we're launching a platform that's going to help everyone. And eight principles, you know, we, we have our four major principles being sleep, meditation, body movement and nutrition. And then we delve into some deeper things like goal setting, time management, um, mm. and reducing how much things you have in your life that you worry about. Uh, so the eight principles, and that's how he came up with Swiss eight on the mountainside. Oh, you know, that's, yeah, it is. It's a really, really simple name, but it mm. encompasses so much. So, yeah, and I mean, um, it's, it's awesome being part of that group. I mean, we've got, we got some pretty good people on board too, you know, like Justin Hug at MG, um, mm. Paul Warren, you know, stuff like that. You know, that mm. there's, there's some really, really good high-profile um, soldiers, ex-soldiers and stuff that are on board with us, which is awesome. It's absolutely fantastic to see you powering through mental injury, physical injury, emotional injury and illness. Although you didn't talk about your terrible facial disfigurement, Coco. Yeah, that, you know, I've got a head for radio. <laughs> no, that's, that's not true. And now I'm going to have to post some video. Coco is a, is a good-looking fellow. There's no facial disfigurement. <laughs> but no, really inspiring uh, to talk to you. It's an amazing story, an incredible journey through your military career and beyond into being an ambassador for Swiss 8. Um, I'm, I'm certainly going to take away some of your insights. Thank you very much for being on the show. Really appreciate it, Coco. Cheers. Thanks, gents. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Um, and just to leave with something special, uh, if, if everybody can take just five minutes of their day to reflect before they go to bed, whether you listen to music or not, just take five minutes to just reflect on your day and figure out what you can do better the next day because, you know, living is about being better the next day than what you are today. So if you can do that and have, you know, be introspective and, and take that time, then we're all half a chance of being better tomorrow. Beautiful way to end this show, Coco. Thank you, mate. Thanks a lot, boys. So please Share with me your hurt Maybe one day I will be able to To take away some of that So please I ask Just hold on Cause I will help take away your pain And please don't let go of this life you're living I want you to understand You're worth much more than you think So please, I ask, just hold on Days. Well, how 
have you been doing while I'm away? Please tell me. You're taking care of yourself. You to understand. If you're not here with me, I can't live like this. Not anymore. So please, I ask, just hold on. So. Take away your pain And please don't let Go all this life you're living I want you to understand You're worth much more than you think So please I ask Just hold on For me For you and I won't let you down When you're nearly giving up Don't you grab your medicine Cause I will help take away your pain And please don't let Go at this life you're living I want you to understand You're worth much more than you think So please I am I ask, just hold on For me We are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.